First Peter, chapter two. We um, left off in verse three. We finished off verse three last time we were in First Peter. We come now to a, a new section here. It runs from verse four down through verse ten, and it has to do with what God has done for us. It has to do with our spiritual privileges in Jesus Christ. And I want to read through the verses, verse 4 down to verse 10. We're not going to get through the 10 verses today. Then I want to give you the outline for where we're going. It's a five-point outline that will cover the verses all the way through. We will not get through the outline today. But I want to give it to you so you can go back and read it on your own and see if you can find out how I got the outline just as a homework assignment. In this section, we come to this interesting section where Peter talks about Christ as the living stone. We see him as the chief cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected. We, we see a lot of the same issues looked at from different angles. And as you look at this and sort of hold it up to the light, it's amazing the richness that begins to unfold to you. It is, in fact, like looking into a kaleidoscope. When you look into a, you know what a kaleidoscope is? When you look into a kaleidoscope, I was looking at one recently, and you have basically the same elements in there that roll around and around, some nice colored stones or glass or whatever, but the same elements as they roll around and around and the light hits them from different angles unfold an ever-increasing richness to you. And that is the way this passage is. As you take your Bible as a word of Christ and let Him shine His light on it, it tends to open up more and more. And this passage is absolutely rich with encouragement and the believer's privileges. So I'd like to read through it. And you can see that and we'll discover it today and in future days to come. In verse 4, Peter writes and he says, Coming to him, that is Jesus, as, a living, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who were not a people but now are the people. Of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You can see what I mean. There is just so much there. First thing I see here is the believer's Christ coming to him. Second thing I see here is the believer's communion. The third thing I see here is the believer's capacity. Your place in the wall of stones, as it were, in the church. 
Then the believer's confidence, you will not be ashamed if you come to him. Then the believer's contrast, where Peter contrasts the life of a believer with that of a non-believer and the end of both. And there's just really some great things here. So the believer's Christ, communion, capacity, confidence, and contrast. And uh, that's where we're going. We're going to fill it in as we go along, and I don't know how long it'll take. Before I get into the message, though, officially into the first point, I want to point something out to you. You may have seen it. You may not. While we were reading through these verses, did you notice how much Scripture Peter quotes? So much of what he is saying is just simply Scripture. And he's sort of weaving Scriptures together to make his point. What you must realize in looking at that is that one of the reasons Peter became as, uh, as effective as he was and as he is here in writing is because he had such a working knowledge of the Scriptures. So that by working knowledge I mean that he didn't just know the Bible chapter and verse so he could just quote it. But what he knew was very great in its extent but he also knew how to apply it to his own life and to the lives of those around him in the church and then to the unbelieving or Christ-rejecting world and those that were lost. One of the things that I see that happens among us is that as we talk about the will of God and as we seek God for His plan for our life, and we begin to sense His work within us, we begin to feel a tug um, that move, that burden within us, that God is leading us into something. We begin to get excited. And after we get excited and we're really praying and we become confirmed, we feel that God is calling us to this given ministry or whatever, then we tend to get impatient. First we're wondering, then we're getting ministered to, then we're excited, and then we become impatient. And that is where we get into difficulty. Because it's one thing for God to show you what He wants to do with you in the future. It is another thing to make you fit and ready to do with you what He wants to do with you in the future. And in our impatience, we often fail to realize that He wants to prepare you for that to which He's going to call you. And it will involve a working knowledge of the Scriptures, which doesn't come overnight. You could memorize the whole Bible and not have a working knowledge of it. You remember on the day of Pentecost, get this, here's Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes like a mighty rushing wind, cloven tongues of fire, the most unusual thing ever. I mean, when was the last time you saw something like that? And it, it, cloven tongues of fire come down on the disciples' heads in this loud roaring wind, and then they start speaking in other languages known to the people around, the glories of God. Peter jumps up and he says, in the middle of everybody obviously wondering, he says, listen to me, this is that which was spoken of. And he goes right into the prophet Joel. I mean, the guy immediately nailed it. This is the most unusual thing I've ever seen and yet reminds me of, let's see, he's going through his mind. No, not Daniel, not, not Ezekiel, not, not, no, no, no. Joel, he sees it right, he looks down, he sees it right-hand column, left page. You know how you see things in your Bible? This is that which was spoken of. You see, he had such a working knowledge of the Scriptures. That's what made him so powerful. 
And you are not ready to do what God has called you to do until you have a working knowledge of the Scriptures. That takes time. So one of the things you want to really give yourself to as you wait on God to go into that thing you feel Him calling you to is to give yourself to the Scriptures and understanding how to apply them to your life. Because until you can apply them to your own life, how are you going to apply them to the lives of others and be used of God in that way? So I want you to see that before we really get into the things of the outline because I think it's very, very important. So as we come then to the text, we're coming to talk about spiritual privileges. And the first thing we see is what we could call the believer's Christ. The believer's Christ. And that is in verse 4. Peter writes and he says, Notice, coming to him as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. What a tremendous line of truths Peter gives us here about Jesus Christ and what we have in him. The first thing here is found in this phrase, coming to him. And that is the person of Christ, coming to him. Do you see that? When you look at this... And you think about Peter. You begin to realize that if you think back to the Gospels and and then into the book of Acts and everything we know about Peter, you begin to realize that for Peter, Christianity was Jesus Christ. That's what it was. It was coming to him. From the very beginning, when uh, Andrew came and said, Come and see. And he came. It was all about coming to him. In the storm on the lake, when he got out of the boat to walk on the water, and the other guys stayed in the boat, it was all about coming to him. Even the night when he denied him, he followed along when everybody else split, took off, scattered. He followed along, and that's how he ended up at the trial. Why? Always coming to him. Oh, yes, he denied, and yes, he sank when he got out of the boat, but trying to get as close to him as possible. I don't think he ever lost track of that. For him, Christianity was coming to him. And that's what it is to be for us. You know, our, our life in Christ is all about coming to him. And it is so easy, isn't it, to get going in the Christian life, to get blessed, to get learned, and even have your working knowledge of the Bible and be used and all of that. And then in the middle of all these great Christian things that we do, to forget that what it's really all about is not all these things we do, but all about coming to Him. Have you been coming to Him lately? Or has He gotten lost in all the busyness? You say, well, I've been doing this, I've been doing that. Yeah, fine, that's wonderful, but have you been coming to Him? You see, that is what Christianity is all about. Because it is in coming to Him that we find forgiveness for our sins. We find forgiveness through his death. You see, people have so many strange ideas about what Christianity is all about. One thing is that it's finding forgiveness in him. It is, it's in him and his death. It's not in what you do. I remember when I was in high school and people were coming to Christ and beginning to witness on our high school campus And I would listen loosely and then walk away in the middle of the conversation, you know, that kind of thing. Sort of the belligerent, um, well, even physically violent at times, non-Christian person. 
beat people up when they witnessed witness to me and stuff. So uh, if you think I was always a nice pastor type, walked around in a suit and quoted the Bible, more along the lines of the Apostle Paul, and I will go to my grave feeling as though I'm the chief of sinners. But I remember people coming and, and talking of Christ and forgiveness of sins, and I thought, you know, they keep saying they have a better life, that He will give you a better life. And I thought, but they have had to stop doing all the things I love. I love getting drunk. You know, I love taking drugs. I love all these things. And they've had to do all that. How could they say it's a better life? I didn't know, you see. And now the very things that I loved, I now hate too. And I have found a better life. But I used to think that by what they did and what they didn't do, they stopped drugs, they didn't do alcohol, they weren't immoral anymore, that in that they found forgiveness. Oh no. If you want to know how you find forgiveness in Christ today, it isn't by what you do or do not do. It is in coming to Him. And in coming to Him, you partake of the effect of His dying for you, for your sins. He took your place in death and punishment at the hands of a holy God. It is in coming to Him you find forgiveness. E. Stanley Jones once said that the cross is the key. He said, if I lose this key, I fumble. The universe will not open to me, but with the key in my hand, I now hold the secret. And the secret to forgiveness and really understanding what life is all about as the veil is lifted is in the cross of Christ, His death for you. People just don't understand that. They, they want to turn it into some kind of a religion. Chuck Colson, you know who he is? He's written a lot of books and become a great influence in our day. He has recorded that so often the things that he says about Jesus are distorted. And he said, and most especially, he said, I am very careful and deliberate to tell people when they say, what made the change in your life? I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he says, inevitably, the print medium will then misquote me and they will change it. And they will speak of Colson's professed religious experience. When that isn't what he's saying at all. He said, I'm very careful to say, it's in him. I have found forgiveness in a new life. And they say, this religious experience. It's not that at all. It is coming to him. And in him, you find the forgiveness you need for your sin. You see, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul summed it up. He said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but unto us who are being saved... It is the power of God. It is the power of God to come, to burst His light upon your soul, to convict you, first of all, that you are a sinner, and to show you your need to come, to be rescued, and then to find that rescue is to experience the power of God and to have that cleansing and forgiveness and to enter into a new life is truly to come to Him and in coming to Him to find forgiveness. Not only that, but here Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 4, coming to Him. It is in coming to Him that we are united with God in a sense through His incarnation. Think about it. When Jesus Christ was born in the manger, here is the miracle of God becoming man. Suddenly, as he is born, God 
is now a man and he's in a little tender body, little tiny infant, the incarnation. Now you must remember that in the incarnation, we are not dealing with sort of a deified human being. Neither in the sense that a man goes up to sort of become like God, nor are we dealing with a humanized God. But we are dealing with 100% God and 100% man. You know why? Because it is in coming to Him, this man, this God-man, that we can touch God. He became a man to bridge the great gap between us so that we could literally reach out and touch God. Because that is what we need, you see. Turn in your Bible, could you, to, to uh, Luke. Luke chapter 8 to verse 42. This to me is one of the most beautiful accounts in the Gospels of this. Great picture. Such a touching, loving reality. Luke chapter 8. And here is Jesus. He's preaching. He's on his way to take care of a big problem that's been presented to him. And as he goes, of course, the multitudes are thronging him. You see that in Luke 8, 42. Notice it says, As he went, the multitudes thronged him. In other words, he could barely even walk forward. People are just cramming in to get near him. Probably shouting, you know, heal me. And one guy, get this demon out of just a big shouting crowded event. And now in the middle of this, there is this very, very sick woman. And she's trying to work her way through the crowd. Obviously, very aggressively because she made it. And it says, now a woman, verse 43, having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. Twelve years. It's a long time, isn't it? This woman was very, very sick. Everything that she had had gone to seek to be healed and she was still not any better. She's despondent. She couldn't be any more hopeless and needy. She could not possibly be. And she comes, notice, and it says in verse 44... It's wonderful to me that Luke, who was a doctor, records these great details. He says, And she came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? What a question. You see him moving through the crowd. Multitudes thronging him. All of a sudden he stops. He's probably been talking as he goes. He stops. He says, Hold on a second. Excuse me. Who touched me? Peter, of course. When all denied it, not me, not me. Peter, always a spokesman for anybody who would let him be. Peter, it says, when all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? What is this all about? I love his answer. Verse 46, somebody touched me. How do you know? Because I perceived power going out from me. See, there was virtue, power that went out from him and into her and immediately healed her. One touch, as close as she could get to him, the hem of his garment changed her life. In verse 47, when the woman saw she was not hidden, for she came trembling, falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people, it's probably so quiet now, you could hear a pin drop, and there she is, trembling, Pathetic, but now rejoicing, glorious picture. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him. 
and how she was healed immediately. What a great picture. Somebody touched God. What a great question. Who touched me? For God to say such a thing, who touched me, is to say that you can touch God. For God to say, who touched me? Somebody touched me. Power went out from me. To touch God is to touch His power. And so the woman is greatly affected and her life is totally changed. And he said to her daughter, verse 48, Be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You see, Christ's humanity is the great hem of His garment by which we can touch the Godhead. Peter says in coming to Him, you know, I get the picture of Peter remembering back all these things. Do you ever just read through the Bible and read it? Look for a message to give to somebody or read it to log in your time. Read it preoccupied. But do you ever come and read it and stop and think about what was on the writer's mind as he wrote it? I love to do that. I love to picture Peter just looking back and coming to him. What are you thinking about, Peter, as you write? And coming to him, oh, I remember that time when I yelled out in front of everybody when the lady touched the hem of his garment. I was just thinking how beautiful it was. And coming to him, what are you thinking about, Peter? Oh, just... The first day when I came and first saw him and talked to him and a look in his eye. And coming to him, what do you think about Peter? How much my life changed when I came to know him. And coming to him, Peter, I'm thinking about all of it. I'm thinking Christianity is Christ. That's what I'm thinking. You see, that is what it's all about. By becoming a man, he enabled you and I to touch God. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. No other mediator. To me, that is tremendous news. Sort of simplifies everything, doesn't it? How many of you grew up with someone telling you, first of all, not only did you, that you didn't need to bring your Bible to church because you couldn't understand it on your own, and someone telling you that you needed a mediator to go through to get to God. How many of you grew up like that? It's kind of a disheartening thing, isn't it? It's also aggravating to be set free and to look back and to say, Why was I kept back for so long when the Bible says there's only one mediator? But now coming and finding there is only one mediator and it's the man, Jesus Christ. And that through Christ, because He became a man... You can touch God and you don't need to go through anybody else is the greatest news to ever hear in all of your life. He unites us with God in His incarnation. And not only does He do that, not only does He give us forgiveness, and that's why we need to be coming to Him, but He sustains us with His presence in coming to Him. Could you turn in your Bible to John fourteen fifteen? John fourteen fifteen. Jesus is about to go to the cross and die, and he knows it. And in his care for his disciples, he wants to set them up so that they won't fear, and they will know how much he loves them and how he longs to care for them. And he says to them, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, John fourteen sixteen. And I will pray the Father and give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him. For He dwells with you, and He will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. 
Two critical things there. Another helper and I will come to you. You know why he's saying this to them? These men had gotten to the point where they couldn't live without him anymore. There was a time when they did not know him and it didn't matter. But once they came to know him and once they lived with him for three years, they broke bread with him. They heard his teaching. They went to him by the campfire for advice. They got to the point where they couldn't live without him. Unlike, you know, in his great sermon on the bread of life, unlike those who said, when he called them to commitment, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And then they all left. A great multitude, they just walked away. Remember, and he turned to his disciples, the close ones, and he said, are you guys going to leave too? I mean, right in the middle of the message, can you imagine? Here is Jesus, of all people, preaching a message. And almost everybody gets up and walks out. I don't feel so bad now. One or two here and there. I mean, that's not bad. Almost everybody left in the middle of Jesus' message. I am concerned, however, because we're approaching that section of that sermon on Thursday night in John, preaching the message that emptied out Christ's church. That kind of gets me concerned, you know. But um, not really. I'm just kidding. But the idea is this. They say, where are we going to go? Look, they're all leaving. I'll stop my message. You want to go too? Where are we going to go? No, we can't leave. No, no. We, we can't live without you. You have the words of eternal life. You've made all the difference to each one of us. No, we're not going no matter what. You see, so it's to these men that are so concerned to be near to him. He says, I will give you another helper. In the Greek it is another of exactly the same kind. So that if I said, oh, you broke your sunglasses or you broke your glasses. Let's get you another pair. Let's get you another pair. And you were very concerned because you liked the ones that broke. And you said, what, what do you mean, give me another pair? Now, you know, what, like Ozzy and Harriet? Like those black kind with the thick rims, of plastic funny? No, what? Mine are cool. I'm concerned to have another of exactly the same kind. That's the word in the Greek. Another of exactly the same kind. Not just another, but exactly. What are you saying to this? Everything about me that you have come to depend on, to know, and to love. Everything that you're concerned to lose when I die and go, I want you to know is coming back to you. I will send you another helper of exactly the same kind to me, the Holy Spirit. Then he says, sums it up in verse 18, he says, I will come to you. In other words, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And I will come through the Spirit and I will be to you everything I've ever been. You can't live without me and you don't have to live without me. Isn't that great to know? For those of you that don't want to live without him, you don't have to. And so Peter says, in coming to Him. You see, in coming to Him in your life is where you find everything you need through the presence of Christ in your life. And that is why we must come to Him and not lose Him in the busyness of our lives. Vance Havner, who was a great Baptist evangelist, he's in heaven now. He used to tell a lot of funny stories. This one I like. He told the story of an elderly lady, it was true, who was greatly disturbed because she had so many problems, real and imaginary. Finally, one day, she was told in a kindly way by her family, Grandma, we have done all we can do for you. From now on, you're just going to have to trust God for the rest. And she went, oh, oh no. You mean it's come down to that? In other words... Life is totally hopeless now. I'm going to have to trust God of all things. Havner commented, it always comes to that, so we might as well begin with that. 
It always does come down to that. You know what it comes down to? Coming to Him. Have you been coming to Him? He's waiting for you. He misses many of you, you know. He never changes. You see, if you have a life where you're frustrated right now, if you've been telling your friends, you know, or even in the privacy of your own mind thinking, I didn't sign up for this when I wanted to become a Christian. This frustration is not what I signed up for. I, I am upset with the way my life is. Listen, then you haven't been coming to Him. If you say my life is empty and dry, then you haven't been coming to Him. If you say I have no power in my life, then you haven't been coming to Him. But on the other hand, if you're here this morning like many of your glowing faces, and you're nodding and you're smiling, you've been coming to Him. You say, I can tell right now. Want me to tell you who all, all the people are? You see, over here, she's been coming to Him. Over here, he's been coming to Him. So many of you have been. But if you're frustrated, it's because you haven't been. The only frustration that's worth having is the frustration that in coming to Him, you only want more. Amen? You come to Him, you get everything you ever wanted, and then, oh, you're just frustrated because you want more. Well, that's what heaven is all about in eternity. As we are coming to Him, He sustains us with His presence in this life. And then... Peter says, in coming to Him, do you realize that at the end, when we die, we will be coming to Him still? One of the great things to me about facing death, and we all face it, is that I'm facing death expecting to have the door opened by the one who died for me. Expecting to have the door opened by the one who died in my place. You remember when... Stephen in the book of Acts was preaching to the Sanhedrin and like his master Jesus he didn't hold anything back all Bible like Peter all Bible and he goes through the whole history of the Jewish people and he he comes right up to them sitting there listening and the closer he gets to putting it right in the lap the matter they get pretty soon he just tells them and you killed him and he died for you and they begin to gnash their teeth and throw dirt in the air and tear their clothes. And then they rush upon him to kill him. And as they were stoning him, they would have taken him as they did in those days to a cliff and thrown him over the cliff. If the fall didn't kill him, they would drop a gigantic stone on his chest to see if that would kill him. If that didn't kill the person, then they would all gather around and proceed to pelt them to death with little stones. And there he is. And at the end of his message, when he realizes, I'm a dead man... I can tell by the looks on their faces, I've got minutes to live. Well, I'm going to let them have it then. And he just really goes, you know. And then he, right in the middle of it all, he stops. He can't help himself. And he looks up and he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and Christ standing on the right hand of God. And that was it. They couldn't take any more. And they rushed on him and they killed him. And as he was dying, looking up, he said, Lord Jesus, don't lay this sin to their charge. And then he died. But you know something? He went right into the arms of Jesus because my Bible tells me that after Christ ascended into heaven as a man, he remains a man. He's a glorified man in the heavens. He's seated, right? Seated on the right hand of God. But when Stephen is preaching and about to die, he sees the heavens open and Christ isn't sitting. What is he doing? He's standing. Why? Why? Because Stephen's coming home. 
And because he's standing up to open the door and receive him right into his arms. You see, in coming to him, even in the end, we will be coming to him. I face death whenever my time is, knowing he will open the door and I will go to him as I have been going to him throughout my life. It is coming to him that makes all the difference in everything. I had, uh, that's my first sub-point of the first point, and I had four. So, we still have to work our way through the first point, but we'll have to leave that for next time because I really, I really want to stop here. I got to this point in the first service and realized we need to come to Him. I don't want to give you any more. I mean, I have pages and pages of stuff. I don't want to give you any more because I'm afraid it will crowd out the most dominant thought of all, that we need to come to Him. I want you to leave here today with the words coming to Him echoing in your minds and on your hearts. Leaving here today having opened your heart anew to Him. He wants to fill you. He wants to change you. He wants to bless you. He wants to give you everything you ever longed for in a relationship with Him and a whole lot more. And those of you that have often thought Christianity to be forgiven, I need to do all this and that and the other. No, you need to come to Him. And if you will come to Him today in your sinful state, He will receive you. If you will just confess to Him that you're a sinner, what you yourself know deeper and in a more agonizing way than anyone, that you are a sinner. If you'll say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And I believe you died in my place. If you will do that today, right where you are. If you will open your heart and say, Jesus, look, it's empty. I tried filling it with everything and it's still empty. Will you come and live in it? Will you come and live inside of me? Will you give me that helper? Will you come to me? Yes, he will. And he will never leave you once he comes. And in the end, when it's your time to die you will go to Him because you've been coming to Him. Will you come to Him today? What holds you back? Open your heart. Let this be the day where your guilt is lifted, where your heart is cleansed. Having come in, felt polluted and filthy inside and wicked, you can go out cleansed, refreshed, covered by the blood of Christ and in God's sight clean as the driven snow. You come and He will receive you. I'm going to pray right now. Afterwards, we'll have the prayer room open. You can go to the prayer room, pray with someone if you need to. But what is important is coming to Him. Let's come to Him now. Father, again, as in the beginning of the message, we thank You for loving us enough to send Your only Son to die for us. And Jesus, we thank You that You became a man that we might touch God and that you have gone back into the heavens and remain a man while 100% God that you might intercede for us that you might meet our every need so we come to you and we thank you that we can and we open our hearts and we ask you to fill us with your life with your transforming love and grace and mercy we come to you to receive you. And so we ask, Lord, for those that have never come, 
that today would be the day you draw them. Today would be the day they open their hearts and come to you. The beginning of a life of coming to you and being filled by you and blessed by you. So, Lord Jesus, we commit these things in our lives to you. Fill us, cleanse us, guide us, and commune with us, we pray. In your name, amen.